Welcome to Season 2 of Journey to the Stage. This is Brian Frazier, and I am so glad you've tuned in today. I had grand plans for a, a two-month break between Season 1 and 2, and then life happened, a little bit of procrastination, and then I got an opportunity to talk with our guests today, so I decided to launch Season 2 a little bit early. So what a way to kick off Season 2, and before we jump into our chat with our special guest today, if you have a moment and feel so inclined, please consider leaving a kind review or following this podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Those kind acts um, and reviews and follows, things like that, are really what fuels a podcast like this. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and I'm actually thinking of enlisting my friend Emma Shapajan to help out with TikTok. Lord have mercy, I don't know if I'm ready for that, but... Growing up in Los Angeles, I had the good fortune of having a great rock station in town, 95.5 KLOS. The smithereens were in regular rotation, and what a treat that turned out to be. In 1988, their second studio album titled Green Thoughts came out, and I hear the song Only a Memory. Then House We Used to Live In came out, and I was sold. I fell in love with their sound, their melodic approach, Pat's voice, the lyrics, those gritty, uh, clean guitar tones, and a rhythm section that pulled no punches. Like their first album, Especially for you, the album charted very well. But nothing could prepare the rock world for what was to come. 1989, the album 11 comes out and features the smash single, A Girl Like You. everywhere. TV, movie soundtracks, all over the radio, and they would go on to create a sound that influenced countless bands that came out of the 90s, like Nirvana, as stated by the late Kurt Cobain, Cootie and the Blowfish, and the Gin Blossoms. And now they have a new album out called The Lost Album, which I cannot wait to dig into. Ensconced in the artist's throne today is Smithereens drummer extraordinaire Dennis Dyken. Dennis, welcome to Journey to the Stage. Well, Brian, thanks for having me. I'm pleased as punch to be here, really. <laughs> it's an honor, and it's a real pleasure to have you on today. We, we've got lots to talk about. This really, really incredible album that you guys have just dropped, and looking forward to playing a couple cuts from that and uh, and talking through those a little bit with you. 
For a minute, I want to talk a little bit of uh, pre-smithereens. What was it that made you want to grab those sticks and, and start playing drums in the first place? Well, you know, I think about that a lot, especially since we've been doing uh, a fair amount of interviews of late to promote this Lost album. I don't know what the actual first spark was, but I know that when I was about two or three years old is when I started really getting the bug and i got a toy drum for christmas of 1959 mm -hmm. and uh, i started banging around using tinker toys and uh, lincoln logs as my drumsticks um nice but i think i think it was uh, eventually what really led me to it was at a young age three four five years old watching american bandstand on tv every yeah. afternoon to me i still consider so many records that came out from that period to be among my favorites. And I still oh, yeah. think 60, 1962 and 63 are still two of my favorite years for music. Um, I, th I really think I got turned on by the twist and then all, you know, gee whiz, Dion, Dion and the Belmonts and the Four Seasons, Leslie Gore, uh, the Beach Boys, the Phil Spector records, all, you know, all the drifters, just all of that rhythm that was coming out at that time got to me i just think i think i had it in me before that point but that's what i think crystallized it for me and i just kept teaching myself to play drums and i first got my first drum kit when i was 11 in 1968 but it was really just a, a love of music and somehow my antenna at that young age was up and i just i don't know i just couldn't not do it <laughs> right well in all of those artists every single one of those artist bands that you just mentioned are incredible. That was such a rich period for music. So oh. it's no oh, surprise yeah. that it grabbed your attention the way it did. Mm -hmm. And I, I really don't uh, subscribe to the theory that to, uh, the years before the Beatles arrived in America, that the music scene was fallow. I, I mean, for reasons I just stated, and I can go on, Del Shannon, Roy Orbison, early Motown, really tons of fabulous soul records, you know? Absolutely. There was incredible music happening, and even stuff like Burt Camfort, you know? And uh, I, don't get me started. I just think that that era is... Uh, is so rich with wonderful music. Yeah, I've heard people say similar things about pre-Beatles, and I think that's a, a vast oversimplification because you were right. There was an incredible depth of of music coming from across spectrums. So when mm -hmm. you started playing where, you know, drums obviously don't have a, a volume knob like a guitar amp did, were you driving your parents <laughs> crazy? <laughs> Um, my parents were cool with it for the most part, but we had some neighbors who were not. These neighbors at, at first were friendly with us. Then all of a sudden, we started getting notices that we were to appear in court. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> really? I yeah, I still have some of the... Uh, there was even some newspaper write-ups about it, and I still have the headlines. One of them said, Neighbors Too Talented. <laughs> and, uh, but, I mean, so anyway, uh, to answer your question, yeah, we had a little, uh, little drama about it, but... We persisted, and the second time we went to court, the judge basically threw it out of court. Says, "I, I, I wish that the Dykins could be my neighbors." You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you'd love to get a judge like that. That's awesome. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That's kind of a badge yeah. of honor. Um, so tell yeah. us before we get into kind of where the band went and everything leading up to this new album. How did the Smithereens become the Smithereens? Mike Mazaris, our bass player, and I go back together to 19 right around 1965 66 we went to grammar school together 
Uh, at the time, we were real good friends all throughout uh, grammar school and high school, although Mike wasn't playing bass at the time. He mm-hmm. was studying accordion. So anyway, we were great friends, and then uh, actually Jimmy Babjack knew him, our guitarist Jimmy, knew mm-hmm. Mike because um, Jimmy lived on the other side of where they divided the school zone. So I didn't go to grammar school with Jimmy, but okay. Mike knew Jimmy because they went to the, they made communion at the same church. Gotcha. And uh, so they knew each other a little bit. So when it came time to get into high school, I had already played in one band that was not great, but it was a good learning experience in yeah, 1971. Right. And I thought, wow, you know, I really would like to meet some hipper musicians. I did in grammar school and the circles I was running, there weren't that many people into the type of music I was listening to. So I thought, well, I'm going into high school. There's going to be a lot more, uh, a bigger student body and new kids to meet. I said, if I could hopefully meet a guitar player who can play, I can't explain by the who, then oh, that's man. probably, that's probably a good starting point And maybe <laughs> I could actually get something going. So the first day of high school in the first period in first row in the first seat, this kid with a kind of a beetly haircut and I'm in the second row, he opens up his loose leaf and there's color pictures of the who plastered inside nice. his, uh, his notebook that he had cut out from Hit Parader magazine. And that was Jimmy. I introduced myself to him and we started playing together that week. He, he was a guitar player and uh, we really hit it off and we've been real good friends ever since then. You know, that is so cool. It reminds me a little bit of Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson from Rush, you know, meeting in, in high school and then staying really best of friends. That's, it's for one thing, it's uncommon for people to stay friends that long through that many mm-hmm. changes in life. but to work together musically and then for long stretches of time when you're on the road to live together, that's a lot for a friendship to survive. That really says a lot about, about both of you guys. Yeah, it does. And you know, Jimmy and I always uh, made a point of hanging out and uh, any opportunity in any city in the world that we were visiting, if we had a day off or a, a few hours we could steal, we really made a point of going out and seeing those cities and hanging out together. So uh, it's really a group of blood brothers and a family type situation. And uh, we don't take it for granted. And, you yeah. know, we met Pat through uh, an ad. Uh, gee, you know, because well, Mike started playing bass right out of high school. Mm-hmm. He, he saw, you know, we were all hanging out and he saw Jimmy and I were playing. And he, Mike always loved music too. So he thought, well, he thought, well maybe a good way for me to kind of keep hanging out with these guys is to learn bass since they didn't, didn't have a bass player. So that's what happened. And Mike got really good mm-hmm. real quick. Yeah. And so we scuffled around in search of a lead singer for a couple of years there. And finally in an ad in a, a, a wonderful New Jersey entertainment paper called the Aquarian, uh, Pat had placed an ad looking for a drummer to play in his cover band. We also took an ad out at that point looking for a lead singer you know, even though I was still playing with Jimmy and Mike, I was kind of stepping out into some other situations, playing drums with some other people and looking yeah. uh, to do things. So anyway, I answered this ad. You see, at the time, cover bands were really popular in New Jersey. Uh, there were clubs all over uh, that were catered to cover bands. And most, but what I'm talking about at that point in time in the mid to late 70s, Southern Rock and Glam oh, Rock right. and um, Top 40. 
but like clubs where you can pack in hundreds of people a night and earn good money. But that's not what this Pat's band was different. This was a, a cover band that was playing Devo and Elvis Costello, the jam, Buddy Holly, oh, wow. the Beatles, you know? So yeah. anyway, long story short, I answered the ad. I rehearsed with them for a couple months, did one gig and parted ways, but I stayed in touch with Pat. That was 1978. Wow. Uh, I stayed in touch with Pat in 1980. He called me, he said, I got these songs and I'd love for you to play on the demos. So I did. And it was just the two of us. And I said, you know, um, I know some fellows who would be really well suited to this music. So enter Jim and Mike and, uh, and that's, that's kind of it. That is so cool. That's, that's a great story. Now Mm -hmm. you guys coming from Jersey, you know, growing up in the sixties, seventies, do you think that growing up in kind of a, a, a blue collar area, maybe, do you think that really affected the type of sound that you guys would go on to create? Uh, it certainly influenced our work ethic mm-hmm. and our attitude. Yeah, if it, yes, because it did inform our attitudes about everything, about life and art and culture. And so it couldn't not have some influence on right. what came out of us as musicians. Yeah. And of course, there were plenty of New Jersey artists that we really dug, most sure. notably uh, the Four Seasons and the Rascals and... I guess New Jersey and New York and this area, there is a very no-nonsense mm-hmm. kind of vibe about uh, the way people go about doing their business. So, yeah, I think that definitely seeped into our into the way we played and the way we gelled together, too. Sure. Well, I know you guys were one of the hardest working bands in rock and roll at that time. I was just listening to an old interview that Pat did on Rockline back in 92 that that flagshiped out of KLOS with the late yeah. um, Bob Coburn. Just, I, I missed that show. I grew up listening to that. And Pat said that you guys would, you would tour for a solid year or more per album because you were pushing and you were driving, you were supporting, you were building your audience. Those early days for you guys were playing lots of colleges and then bigger venues as you guys got more and more popular. When you think back maybe to that period of time, what comes to mind for you? I guess I'll, I'll start by thinking about that first tour, for especially for you, because that was that was the longest running tour. That went for fifteen or sixteen months. Wow! And I mean, mind you, we came home for breaks here and there. Sure, sure. But the entire experience of being on the road and promoting that album did last. Uh, over a year. I remember, and that tour, okay, we didn't have a tour bus. We just had a van and a trailer. <laughs> so uh, I remember, I'll just flash on a couple of memories. I just remember it being a lot of fun, mm-hmm. a lot of hard work, but very exciting because at a certain point, uh, we were, like you said before, we were fortunate that we were on MTV, all over MTV with yeah, several of our early singles and and later singles and FM radio really grabbed a hold of us. Mm-hmm. We were just lucky to be able to do what we loved and and to actually have a career doing what we always wanted to do with people that we liked and music that we we were passionate about. So I do remember just uh, feeling like uh, okay, I have I, one specific memory that uh, I think about from that first tour. We had played the Roxy in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and it might have been our second visit there. It was the f- 
fall of 86. Okay. I think we played there earlier in July or August, and we went back, and we were just doing gangbuster business in L.A., which, mm -hmm. okay, so it was, it was cool to know that we traveled all the way from New Jersey to the West Coast, and we were able to tour the country and have success not just in our home state area, but all right, over, and right. here we are knocking them dead in L.A., and so... <laughs> So that was a thrill, but I remember this one sound check at the Roxy. Uh, after we came off stage, we had a, a bit of a huddle with our radio promo man from Enigma Records, which yeah. is the label we were first on. His name yeah. was Rick Winward, and he, he called us aside. And at the time, Blood and Roses had been doing great all summer. Mm -hmm. It was starting to fade a bit. But we had released Behind the Wall of Sleep as the follow-up. Yeah. And he called us aside and he told us that Wall of Sleep was getting some traction. It was getting added at radio and uh, we were gearing up to promote the new single, do a new video. And uh, the fact that we were getting ads at uh, major stations on a second single gave us hope and made me think, wow, maybe we really do have legs and we can continue this. And it's not just one a one hit kind of thing. So right. it, that moment in the, I think it was early autumn of 86, uh, that was in that little, little area by the stairs along on the side of the stage at the Roxy. That was mm -hmm. one of my, that's one of my fondest memories. Just thinking, all right, let's, let's keep going. When I think of the nineties, I could hear your guys's influence in so many bands. I can hear that as a fan do you ever hear your influence in other bands? Or are you are you a little too close to the fire, so to speak, to be able to discern that? Because it's definitely there. Do you ever pick up on that in in other bands that came out, maybe in that you know started breaking in the in the mid nineties? Oh uh, yeah, I'm hard pressed to think of examples at the moment. Well, I think Gin Blossoms would be one of them. Uh, well, yeah, definitely. that is, that is true. You know, Robin Wilson who fronts our band uh, as guest vocalist on quite a few shows. Yeah. The other uh, singer being Marshall Crenshaw. Robin uh, expressed to us how huge a fan of ours he was. And uh, matter of fact, I don't have a clear recollection of meeting him in 1988, but we did an in-store appearance at Zia Records in Tempe, Arizona, where he had worked at the time. And he was um, among one of the folks who was at the store that day. And anyway, yeah, so he, uh, the Gin Blossoms certainly were influenced by the Smithereens. And as you said, it's documented that uh, Nirvana, were they were actually listening to our album 11 in the studio when they were creating Nevermind. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but to your question, I hear cuts on the radio, and I may not even know who some of the bands are when I hear, mm -hmm. uh, when I do notice that uh, they certainly were listening to our records like you, know, you could tell by the way they might play a chord jimmy has a very unique way of voicing chords i think that definitely was on the turntables of a lot of the grunge bands there's kind of a some moxie there and just uh i think partly the chord structures pat's vocal delivery though is kind of the icing on top so there's this there's kind of an approach that I'm not surprised that a lot of other bands would eventually pick up on. And that's not surprising. And I think, you know, you look at a band like Gin Blossoms or maybe even Hootie and the Blowfish where their sense of melody was very strong. I could hear a lot of smithereens in a lot of that music. Yeah, Hootie has cited us as well. I, uh, mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I think when they were still a frat band, they were doing a number of our tunes. They were covering them before they were signed. Yeah, there's a book out. Tim, oh, Tim Summer, I think is the author's name, that wrote a book about Hootie that's supposed to be really enlightening. And I, huh. I 
I want to read that. I think it came out this year. Yeah, I I, that, I'll have to look it up myself. Yeah, but but no, that's a that's a keen observation on your part there. So before we talk about the new album, I want to play one of my favorite songs from it. So from the Smithereens brand new album titled The Lost Album, this is Out of This World. <laughs> Dennis, this this is a great song. This is classic, classic Smithereens. What can you tell us about really how this whole album came about? Because obviously, you know, there's a lot of history between 
you guys touring and uh, those early college days and lots of success in airplane, these things. But tell us a little bit about how this album became a reality and got released. Yeah. So, uh, the record that preceded the sessions for what turned out to be the lost album was blow up that mm -hmm. came out in late uh, autumn of 91. And, uh, we spent, uh, much of 92 on the road promoting that album. And, um, when that all wound down, we found ourselves with a bunch of songs that we wanted to record. And in short order, we found ourselves without a label. <laughs> and uh, so we said, well, we're still going to record these tunes. And we did. So when we were between labels, we went to a studio in New York City. And prior to this, we had recorded in New York a lot. We did our first two EPs, Girls About Town and Beauty and Sadness in, Ma in Manhattan. We were working at the record plant, which was a great thrill, nice. a legendary studio on West 44th Street. And we did our first album there as well, especially for you. Following that, when we signed, we're able to jump off Enigma and go right into onto Capitol, mm -hmm. which was a dream come true for us. And, uh, they wanted us to record Green Thoughts in Los Angeles at the Capitol Tower, which, uh, was also a big moment. Oh, so, sure. and, the, and, and then 11 and blow up were also cut in California in, in LA. So point being when we set out to do this batch of sessions in 93, we chose to do it in New York, uh, at a place called crystal on West 19th. It's not there anymore, but it was like reporting to work every day. Cause we got to stay home, stay with our families, sleep on our own beds, but uh, report to the office, drive through the tunnel. And it was a period of focus and, uh, yeah. an accomplishment. It was really a fun bunch of sessions. And we recorded two albums worth of material. Shortly after we completed that project, we did get signed mm -hmm. to RCA and, uh, half of that batch of songs ended up being re-recorded for a date with the smithereens for rca oh, okay yeah gotcha so that those earlier versions were cut at the same period and uh, studio as uh, the lost album so those songs ended up on a date with which came we cut in late 93 mm -hmm. and that came out in early 94 and then we were left with this uh, backlog of material which we just kind of considered it to be part of that era, part of that project, we moved forward. And, uh, after a date, we came up with new material and time goes by. And, um, now we're going through our vaults and we have a lot of material there, a lot of tapes, and, um, we are planning reissue projects for much of it. This particular 12 tune batch, we just thought, well, this, this hangs together well as an album. Sure does. All we need to do is remaster it, sequence it, find some graphics. And I uh, had plenty of snapshots from the sessions, so we put mm. that all together. And uh, here it is. When you listen back through that, I would imagine you probably heard it on a couple of levels, musically, of course, but on an emotional level, from a band history level, knowing that you know, Pat's been gone for a number of years now. What was that like for you? Because it's a little bit of a time capsule. Was it a mixture of emotions for you? What, what was that like for you personally? Yeah, it certainly took us back. It took me back to that period in time, which I have very fond memories of. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess one point that came to mind for, for the rest of us was that Pat's vocals on this kind of mark the last 
era of what we called the young Pat mm. voice. I guess if we had sung lead on any of these, you could probably say the same for any of us, but I don't mean to say that his voice turned for the worse. I just mean that there was a certain timbre and a certain quality to it that existed only for a certain period of time, as it does for any human. Yeah, there's a certain youthful exuberance that we still maintain. I got to say, we're, uh, we're no spring chickens, but whenever we hit the stage, we do flash back to our teenage years and <laughs> nice. we really do play like we're 17. I don't know how that happens, but no matter how tired you are from the road or whatever might be going on, when you hit the stage, there's a job to be done and you go to work and it, it's, the important thing is to play well, but it, the other important thing is to have a lot of fun. Absolutely. I need to change this when you guys get back on the road. I've never seen you guys live before and I it's a bucket list thing. So when you guys come to California, if you're within several hours, I will find a way to get there because I've, I've got to see you guys live. Oh, great. Yeah, that would be wonderful if you could. When you look back, and I would imagine probably listening to this lost album that's been sitting in the old shoebox for a while, does it cause you to think back to some of the other real high points in your career like you know when a girl like you broke and it was just massive massive i mean that song was on klos so much and i still have my my cd do you think back to those times and if you do what is that like to to kind of reminisce and, and walk through some of that band history well you know it's interesting when you get asked a question like that because um i know as a fan myself i mean i interview people sometimes mm -hmm for my show and for, and, uh, I've done liner notes and essays and things. So I've had the opportunity to interview some of my favorite artists. And, uh, we as fans, when we do that, we're looking at it as fans. But when you ask me, what do I think of those times? I, of course, remember the personal side of things and the incidents and the, uh, and where I was and, uh, so if you ask me about uh, like that era of 11, my go-to answer is, well, it was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, We saw then and we still see the joy on our audience's reaction to us. And it's really, it's really bona fide and it's really meaningful to us that, yeah. that that is the deal. But we were in the eye of the storm. So we see that fun side of things from the stage mm -hmm. and it really is like that still. But at the time, we were touring like crazy. In addition to performing, mm -hmm. we would go to maybe two, three, sometimes four radio stations during the day wow. uh, to promote the records, do phone interviews with press, sometimes TV, in addition to playing late, getting up early. And, and so I don't say this with any kind of uh, lack of fondness for those times, but mm -hmm. it was a lot of work. Sure. <laughs> it was a lot of... Uh, a lot of time being away from my wife, but it uh, just kept the ball rolling. And we, it'll be 43 years in March. That's really incredible. Yeah. And you know that Pat would be just so happy that you guys have continued and, and just are laying it out on the stage every night like you were talking about. That's, that's really, really cool for you guys to stand that test of time and to have an audience that still wants to come out and see you. That's obviously nothing you would take for granted, but that's most bands don't accomplish that. That's got to be something to be very, very proud of. And, and that does come from, I think, a lot of the hard work that you guys have put in. So 
That's really incredible. I often cite this too. When we were touring heavy in those days, we played a ton of colleges and, um, and we did real well there and we made a lot of friends and fans and they never stopped listening to us. They of course went on to have careers and families. Now their kids have grown up and their, their kids are in college. So they're empty nesters and they're coming out to see us again. They're the ones that are telling us that we're still playing like we're teenagers. And they're the ones that are telling us that <laughs> they think we're better than ever and, awesome. uh, and that we bring joy to their lives. So, I mean, wow. It's, it's really something. It really is. That's incredible. Truly incredible. Let's play one more song from the album, which is out now. And you can stream it, you can buy it, and we'll put links to where you can get physical copies uh, in the show notes. Um, there's another excellent song that we're going to listen to, Don't Look Down. What can you tell us uh, about this song? Oh, I remember that we did a number of different approaches and grooves and takes on this one. And we finally arrived at something that felt really good. I just remember working hard on this track, and I'm just glad we did because I think it came out pretty good. Let's listen into it. This is Don't Look Down on the brand new album called The Lost Album from The Smithereens.
so Dennis, thinking back to those early days when four 20-something-year-olds would, would play in Mike's garage or in Pat's basement and talk and dream around the dinner table in Pat's kitchen, as I was reading about, for all the peaks that you guys have climbed and, and all the success the Smithereens have had, how connected do you feel to those four hardworking musicians that were meeting back then? Well, I, you know, I was just talking about this whole idea with my wife last night, actually. We've certainly grown and time has passed, but we're really still the same people we always were. I feel very connected to all the uh, inspiration and the spark that I had when I was young. I still get the same thrill out of listening to the music I've always loved. I think it's really great, and I think it's important that people do that if they can. I uh, I feel sorry for those who can't. I know everybody goes on different paths in their lives, but uh, many of those people that separate themselves for whatever reason from the thrill that they got when they were younger and uh, so passionate about music or whatever it was that they were doing, and if they lose that, man, I, first of all, I, I can't understand why. Well, life gets in the way. You have kids, whatever, distractions. And I guess I do understand it, but... I still thrive on it, and I thrive on finding new music and uh, and just going throughout my day and getting inspired by life. But I think that's the way we always were, all four of us. You know, yeah. I, the three of us that are still here. I think we we're pretty much the same people. Yeah, uh, hopefully a bit wiser. Sure, <laughs> uh, older for sure. And uh, you know, I don't know if everybody can say the same about themselves. I, I feel that we are. I feel we're the same people, the same with, with a little more, li- well, a lot more life experience. And, sure. You know, if I only knew then what I know now, right? Yeah. That actually is, is a good segue to a type of question I love to ask artists who have had a lengthy career like you had. If mid-60s Dennis could pull up a chair to that kitchen table in Pat's house and sit down with those mid 20 somethings bandmates for five minutes. What do you think you might share with them? Use hearing protection earlier (laughs) in your sage, very sage. I mean that in all sincerity for anybody listening that plays music, whether you're younger or older, and if you haven't started wearing hearing protection, I would uh, strongly advise that you do take it from one who knows. I came into songwriting later in, in my life than I wish I had. I, it turns out I have ideas that I've, that I've been floating around in my head since I was a kid and I'm still turning them into songs. So I I always thought I was just a drummer. I can't play any other instrument, but all it takes is an imagination and melody and, and uh, the will to do it and, and finding a way to express it. So finally I'm doing that. I, I wish I had done that earlier. I wish that I had learned to play another instrument earlier in my life. I always wanted to, and I tried for a while. Uh, I think, uh, again, to any uh, younger listeners that are aspiring musicians, it's it's good to be able to play an array of different uh, instruments. So that that's what I, I would have told myself, and maybe to be a little more savvy business-wise. You're probably not a- alone in that thinking. I think probably a lot of artists would look back and say, man, I wish I could have done this. So that from a business perspective, I think you're, that's, that's not an uncommon answer. Yeah. Definitely understandable. So you guys are, you're getting ready to get out on the road and you're going to be having Marshall Crenshaw front with you guys again, which is really, really awesome. Are you guys 
planning a larger tour? Are you getting out here on the on the West Coast? I'm thinking very selfishly here. Are you guys coming out to California anytime soon? Well, we were there in the, over the summer. I think it was in July oh, okay. or, or, yeah. or August. I forget. I think it was August, actually. Yeah. We played in the greater Los Angeles area. Our touring these days is mostly extended weekends. We're not out there every night playing. We're mostly flying out for you know, sometimes Thursday through Sunday or, or Friday through Saturday or what have you. So we're going here and there. And we'll be working on a new studio album as well. That's really cool. And will you be doing some of the writing for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all writing. And we also have a, a reissue coming out of our 07 or 08 Christmas album, which previously was only uh, available on CD. It's coming out on vinyl. And Jimmy has a Christmas 45 that's coming out. And uh, Jimmy's got his own line of coffee right now, which is called Bab Jack's Coffee. Yeah, I saw and, that on, on the band's website. That's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, and I've got my weekly streaming show, Denny's Den, on WFMU.org. It's on the Rock and Soul stream. So, we're all quite busy. Staying busy. And I'll put links to all of those things in the podcast show description so people can jump on and check those out. Oh, the good. band's website is www.officialsmithereens.com. And, of course, there you can get tour dates, you can get merch, physical copies of music, you can get the coffee everything it's it's all there and um, so i'll make sure that i put all those links in there for everybody dennis it has been a real honor to have you on i i started season two early because i had an opportunity to connect with you and i'm very very grateful and so thankful for your time well i'm glad you decided to do that because it was my pleasure being here with you and uh, and i always like to make a point uh, to say that we really do have a, a very sincere and deep appreciation for our fans because um, they've stuck with us for so many years and uh, they're still out there for us and there would be no reason for us to do what we do if it weren't for them so uh, we're we're very grateful to to them and to to everybody that maybe might just be discovering us well and for me personally to you and mike and jim and of course the the gifted and late pat denizio um, thank you for 40 plus years of some great rock and roll. Very, very much appreciate that. All right. Well, I had a great time today. I do appreciate being here with you. Excellent. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. You can like us on Facebook or follow on Instagram. All the links that we've talked about will be in the show notes today. And keep your bags packed and join us on our next Journey to the Stage. And that's a wrap. Take care, Dennis. Okay, bye now.